Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet. Risk takers, adventurers, travelers, investors, entrepreneurs, and simply mind bogglers. Find all episodes of this show. Simply go to Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube, or go to our website, judgmentcallpodcast.com. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or subscribe to us on YouTube. This episode of the Judgment Call Podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the airfare deals that you really want. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% in the airfare. Those include $150 round-trip tickets to Hawaii for many cities in the US, or $600 life-led tickets in business class from the US to Asia, or $100 business class life-led tickets from Africa round-trip all the way to Asia. In case you didn't know, about half the world is open for business again and accepts travelers. Most of those countries are in South America, Africa, and Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium, go to mightytravels.com slash MTP, or if that's too many letters for you, simply go to MTP, the number four, and the letter U.com to sign up for your 30-day free trial. So Jim, you're an adventure and explore park salons. And uh, a couple of years ago, you started something called the Ice Warrior Project. And um, I had never heard about that project before. Maybe you can help us realize a little more what you've done in the past and what led you to this project and what it is all about. Yeah, well, um, I was a bit of a naughty boy at school. I wasn't a nasty boy. I was a naughty boy. And they sent me on Outward Bound and... Uh, that's where I discovered uh, the wilderness, wildness. Uh, and I discovered that um, I was quite good in the wild. <laughs> uh, so, And I loved it. It was a bit like James Bond, if you like, uh, a license to kill as far as I was concerned. <laughs> so I started climbing uh, voraciously. I started uh, mountaineering and I, uh, I haven't stopped really. Uh, so that uh, led me into it. Um, Ice Warrior really came about as um, I was inspired by the Outward Bound uh, place I went to, which was uh, in winter in the mountains, by uh, stories. Uh, they had a library of uh, exploration that was just amazing, and I was inspired by these stories. And so having done, I don't know, 20, 25 years of exploration, uh, and mountaineering, I wondered, uh, you know, how I could uh, form some sort of project that would, um, that would inspire others, really. Uh, and so I thought about it, and I thought, would it be fantastic if we could emulate the golden era of exploration uh, in the modern sense? Um, so in those days, they hadn't got a clue uh, where they were going half the time, uh, what their... Uh, what they were going to find when they when they went there, how long they were going to go for. And so um, these days we do pretty much know what we're going to face, uh, how long we're going to face it for. So it would be foolhardy not to train people. But, but they called for volunteers from all walks of life, all echelons of society, all nations, actually. And, uh, and they went off on these incredible adventures and uh, 
explorations. And so that's what we do in the modern day setting, except we train people fully in, in what to expect. And so that's how Ice Warrior came about. Um, the name Ice Warrior, I sort of balked at when someone said, call it Ice Warrior, because I thought, oh my God, I'm gonna be called the Ice Warrior <laughs> in the media. Uh, but then I put my sort of, uh, I spent some time in marketing and I put my hat on and I thought, hang on, I've got this image in my mind's eye uh, of that logo and, um, and hey, we can do lots with it. Although it's really corny, uh, people will remember it and will, um, uh, you know, it'll have all the cognitive effect that uh, would benefit uh, um, the whole process. So. So that's how it became the Ice Warrior Project. And that was 20 years ago now, 2001. Uh, since then, we've trained 400 people, over 400 people, uh, uh, to do seven major expeditions. We, we've been cited as data gatherers in all the big uh, scientific publications. And, uh, and I'm a very happy man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's corny at all. You know, I think it's a, it's a very fitting title. And I definitely came across a bunch of images of you in a polar expedition outfit, you're all iced up. So I think yeah. it's very fitting. I think it's well done. And it's so what a lot of people don't realize is that we're not talking about a polar expedition in the sense of this isn't a cruise. So this is something you sign up and you book a tour and then someone takes you to an Arctic car or the Arctic. It what you do actually is that you train people that they can be explorers on their own. They literally could go on their own. It's, it's, it's the real thing, right? Yes, uh, I consider myself a real explorer uh, as opposed to an adventurer. I guess my definition of a, an adventurer is someone that does something uh, pretty much for their own reasons. Uh, whereas um, it, being a family man, I've got three kids, I've got two grandchildren, <laughs> I have to justify more really. And I, in myself, I, I need it to be as worthwhile as possible. So uh, all my adventures uh, have a uh, real purpose and worthwhile nature to them. So we data gather really for the scientific communities all, all over the world. And that data gathering is all about uh, the changing world that we're living in. So climate change, species change, topographical change, all sorts of change that we find in these incredibly remote areas on this wonderful earth that we're living on. So yeah, they're not. Um, yeah. They're not. Sorry. <laughs> no, so they're ahead. not. Uh, they're not tours. They they are uh, expeditions in the old-fashioned real sense and and what we train people to do is to become modern day explorers and when you people join the ice warrior project they they sign up for a date they pay a certain fee right so it is it's no. not <laughs> oh okay you can't pay to to become an ice warrior as it were you have to raise the money uh, and I teach you how to raise the funds. Uh, and the reason for that really is several fold. It's because if you've got the gumption, the characteristics to go out there and tell people about this and engage people uh, and talk about it with conviction and, uh, and from the heart, then uh, that's the sort of person that I want uh, in my ice team, really, uh, because those characteristics are what I call good egg characteristics, and and they're the ones that uh, you know can put up with the what I call embuggerances of expeditioning. So, 
but not only that, if they go into their own community and talk about this and engage their own community, which they have to do to raise this money, then in, obviously we, we get a larger audience and other people engage as a result of it. So, yeah. So let me understand this. So anyone who wants to join basically has to crowdfund a certain amount of money. I assume it's ten, twenty thousand dollars. Uh, yeah, well, it, it depends on the expedition. Uh, this okay. flagship expedition that we've got at the moment is uh, the last true uh, polar first in the polar regions. So uh, it is big. It's massive. I've billed it as the, the biggest, boldest, bravest and most important expedition of our time. And I'll stand by every single one of those phrases and explain them if you like. <laughs> Well, there must but, mean a uh, lot coming from you. <laughs> Just run me through it. If, if I would like to join, if, if I want to have a shot yeah. at this, what would I need to do? So you contact me. Uh, we have a, a weekend that you can go on, which we've called a selection weekend. But actually, it's a weekend where you learn what it's all about and learn whether you want to actually do it. And we mess on this weekend. Essentially, we make people tired, wet, cold and hungry and see if they... Uh, fight each other or, or look after each other. And it's the people that look after it, each other that, uh, that that really want to do it. But it's not um, uh, egotistical or uh, 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 elitist in any way. It's, um, it's, it's allowing people to make their own decisions as to whether this is for them or not. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I go once, to a casting they... weekend. I, I, yeah. So... And I can hack this in the sense of I, I know what you're looking for, so I can just yeah. behave that way, right? I, can, I yeah. can fake it, so to speak, if, if I can, or if you don't put too much pressure on me, which you will try to. Yeah. And I assume I, assume I get through the basic training. Well, what happens then? Well, then we take you uh, on to UK-based training or fairly civilized training, if you like. We are based in the heart of Dartmoor here in the southwest of the UK which is moorland area and quite wild in, in various areas and it's quite difficult, uh, you know, for someone that's never done anything outside, it can be very uh, intimidating in itself. But, um, but we take you through all the, what we call core skills, uh, which are all those things like camping, camp craft, uh, rope work, navigation, uh, or clothing systems, just to be an outdoors person first and foremost. And so, um, and so that's 10 days. And after that, uh, we then take you to my, uh, my base up in Svalbard, which is just 800 miles from the North Pole, where we do all that again, but in a very cold setting. And you've got polar bears uh, that you've got to protect yourself from. And, you know, it's, it's the real Arctic uh, experience, as it were. Um, and that's for, they have a first week where we get them on skis and we get them pulling sledges. And then the second week, we uh, we add a, a lot more information, like how sea ice breaks up and everything else. And we get them out there experiencing as much uh, as possible of uh, what they might come across. And uh, uh, finally, uh, we give them an eight-day training expedition where we bombard them with all the what-ifs, all the things that could go wrong. And we practice those, uh, you know, ad infinitum as it were we, we practice them really hard and all the time so they are as prepared as they possibly can or possibly can be for the for the expedition itself so that totals about 36 days of training 
if I come with my theoretical knowledge of watching all the Bear Grylls episodes, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's, that's my preparation. And I, I used to spend a lot of time outdoors, but that's, I admittedly, quite some time ago. So I, I went camping, remote areas, but never where it's extremely cold. I went to the, to the jungles and, and, you know, survived for a while. That was yeah. pretty miserable, but it, you know, it was doable. I felt better because I could tick that box. What is kind of the attrition rate? So say there's a bunch, and I assume it's, it's more boys than girls. Correct me if that's wrong. Was it 50-50? Yeah, our intake is about 20% female and 80% blokes. But I try, by the time we get an expedition team together, to balance that. So we've got yeah. as near 50-50 as possible. Because that, uh, when you're adding a huge head of pressure, is the best team you can get, I think. Yeah. What is the attrition rate? Say, how many people start doing this and have that desire and reach out to you and reach out to the Ice Warrior Project? And how many people actually go on such an expedition? Uh, there's a huge attrition rate, um, and a lot of people after their polar training, uh, that's enough for them. Uh, you know, they've had the real polar experience. Uh, they've been just 800 miles from the North Pole. They've been expeditioning out in the wild there. They've had that experience, and quite a lot of them uh, come up and say, that's fantastic, Jim, thanks very much, <laughs> but I don't <laughs> want to do the expedition. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and it's surprising, you know, I can never, uh, in all my 36 years of doing this, I can never tell uh, which people are going to end up being able to do it because it's 70% in the mind and 30% in the body. And a lot of people, certainly at the outset, get, uh, you know, that round the wrong way. They think it's all about fitness and, um, uh, you know, physical strength, but actually it's mental strength that's so important. It really reminds me of what people tell me about the basic training that Navy SEALs go through. And they, they had to come up with this whole system of, of in the end, not just challenge people over time mentally and physically, but also to come up with, with the characteristics that they're looking for. So they have, they have developed kind of a, a big five, of, but in, in, in a Navy speak, um, hmm. Characteristic that they look for, and they feel they can't do it without the basic training. So I think it's four to six weeks. It's a relatively long period, and they've tried everything to to predict who would come out on the other end. And they say without that, there's just no way because we, they recruit mm -hmm. extremely strong leaders from a group of eighteen year olds who've never been in leadership position their whole life. So there's nothing to to look at. There's no CV to look at. There's no sure. credentials. There's no how many sit ups can you do? They say none of these things work. They have to come up with the six weeks of trainings. Of, of training or, or, or practice, and then you see a very different personality. Is that something that, that you have developed as well, like a personality model? Uh, yeah, I suppose I have, um, and it's been very natural. Uh, um, because Mother Nature is the head of pressure, um, it's quite easy for me to do this. Uh, so expose people to Mother Nature, potentially at her worst, and you'll... A, first and foremost, the person themselves will find themselves. They'll get to know themselves. And that's a big thing in modern day society. You know, we all kid ourselves and delude ourselves that we've got this knowledge and that ability. And uh, actually, when you're out there doing this sort of stuff, you you can't bluff yourself. You can't delude yourself. You can't get into petty politics with someone else. You You've got to get down to the nitty gritty. What am I like as a person? What will 
make me happy what will make me sad what will what will i do when i'm in those two different modes so first and foremost they get to know themselves really really well and that's cathartic uh, and it's empowering actually uh, and it makes better people of us all i think if i had my way i'd take everyone to these extreme regions you know just to give them that experience to to settle down as a human being if you like you know. And then the second thing they get to, to know is about um, what it is they need to do to be a really good team member. Uh, so a really good expedition team member. And that's usually uh, being empathetic in the first instance. Uh, that's um, you, you, unless you're looking after each other, uh, the whole thing becomes much more dangerous. And you, you get to know that pretty early on in, in the training scheme so it is um it is mentally very refreshing to do this sort of thing and you know i'm that's one of my big motivations is realizing people's potential uh, and i can see these people go through this journey from start to finish and, and change and grow i call it the walk tall syndrome really because uh, you know what they've been through uh, facing mother nature like this and and all the experiences they've had have been you know, hard. They've been really uh, difficult times mentally and physically for them. But they come back and they go into their own community and they can't really talk to people about it. They can't explain what they've been through. Yeah. So they walk taller. There's an inner calmness, reassurance, if you like, that they take on. And they feel, because they're medically trained by then and, and everything else, they feel as though they could handle anything that happens in their own sort of society, in their own backyard, as it were. So, so yeah, it's quite a... a I suppose Ice Warrior, in a nutshell, is, is, is three Ds. It's the development of the person to then discover the changing world that we're living. And then it's really to deliver those stories to other people to engage them. So it's it's three things, yeah. It definitely sounds like a like a more accessible Navy SEALs training experience to me. But they, they report very similar values. I, I had yeah. uh, Mike Saray on uh, quite some time ago, and he said there is this expression. Obviously, I forgot it, but there is a lot of people with high problem-solving ability, high intellect, high mental skills, but they're not a team player. And they mm. are being sorted out doing that training because in that team effort, they are not much use because they, yeah. just, they just drive everyone crazy and they, they, they definitely don't help the team, they help themselves. And that is often a surprise because that's also one of those things nobody can really predict who is that because you know, obviously people lie, they, won't, they will tell you anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How many people do you actually take on these expeditions when you go out? And how scary are they? Maybe you can describe us a little bit that one of the... Um, excursions you just did and how much do you have to trust these people with your own life like obviously they trust you if, if you mislead them then they're toast but how much do you have to rely on them well one of the first things i tell them is that um, you, know, you are going to have to trust me because i will have at some stage your safety in these two hands here well metaphorically speaking and then uh, the next sentence is and indeed you have my safety in your hands. So that's my um, onus 
to train you up to a level where you are competent. And we measure the level of competence in each and every factor of the developmental process. Um, and you have to be competent because my life will be in your hands as well. We're in this boat together. Uh, and if they start off with that sort of uh, idea, then you, you build upon that. I mean, the most in, important characteristic, as far as I'm concerned, is what I call brutal honesty. Uh, now, it, brutal is, is because you're being brutal with yourself. Uh, I do uh, quite a bit of performance uh, coaching, if you like, and people are quite shocked by, uh, you know, some of the stuff I, I speak about, although it is common sense. It's not, <laughs> it's, it's not brain fetching. Um, but one of the things I th talk about is this brutal honesty. You have to be totally honest with your abilities, your skills, your knowledge, your experience. And then if you get to that stage where you are, then that is when you can progress. You know which performance factors to look for. You know whether it's a mental thing, a physical thing. Um, it, all those things can line up and you can start developing properly. Um, so yeah that's where they start from brutal honesty and as i say mother nature just doesn't let you be anything else when the chips are down yeah when you look back into the last couple of excursions that you did i don't know how many you did in the lifetime of iceware it's been around since 2001 2002 2001 we've had seven major expeditions now, those major expeditions have involved, um, I think the minimum has been six people and the maximum has been 22 people so far. Uh, the next one is 28 people. So, yeah. So there's quite a lot of people involved. How, how many days do you spend in the Arctic usually, right? You go to the Arctic. Uh, well, each year I will spend uh, three lots of um, training camps uh, so that'll be three weeks at a time. So that's nine weeks. And then uh, if there's an expedition involved, which there isn't every year because you're building up to the expedition, um, yeah. then that'll be another uh, at least a month, probably. Well, the next one is three months. So, yeah. So it's quite a long and time. You're, you're a month out there, right, in the Arctic. When when you go out there, do you have enough supplies? Do you bring enough food? Do you bring enough shelter, warmth, you know, um, place abilities to, to, to have water? Do you bring that with you? Um, or is that something that's kind of get helicoptered in over time? Um, it depends on the nature of the expedition. If you're talking about the expedition itself, training is different because we start people off in a very sensible way. We, we, we are accommodated to begin with on their first week and then the second week uh, we, we go out into the wilderness and stay out into the wilderness. And then by the time they do their eight-day training expedi expedition, they are really out there. And it's that that gets people up here um, because there's no let-up, there's no... Um, hiding away from that cold uh, and that cold can be you know quite devastating quite uh, incapacitating uh, to people um, that's why I can't predict how people are going to be and until I've got them cold basically yeah. um, and I've had some of the most fittest people um, that on the face of it should just walk through things uh, without any problem whatsoever uh, but they don't. They fail on the basis of not being able to put up with the deprivations 
of being immersed in Mother Nature's really cold regions for, for that length of time. How cold does it get? Is it minus 50 Fahrenheit, uh, what we know from Antarctica? But when you go, what's typically a temperature range that you would encounter? At the beginning of the season, it's very cold. You have very long nights, very short amounts of sunlight. Uh, and in fact, in training, we train them in the polar night, which adds a you know, certain difficulty anyway. It's very difficult knowing whether it's 10 o'clock in the morning or 10 o'clock at night mm. once you've been uh, you know, traveling for a few days. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, they really get used to, 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 to the whole process. Yeah. And I, do you take gear like night vision gear with you? Like where people are properly equipped for these temperatures or is it kind of you yeah. some, some elements to random so that people can kind of show themselves in that first expedition week? Uh, yeah, sure. During training, we, we throw in spanners. If they're doing too well, we'll, we'll throw in something that will trip them up uh, and, uh, you know, allow them to, to realize what to do in a certain situation. Maybe one of them's got cold uh, and hypothermic, so they've got to deal with that situation. Maybe one of them falls into the water in between the sea ice, you know, and so they've got to deal with that situation. But uh, so they, yeah, they go through every single aspect to make them competent and as much experienced as we possibly can during that training process. But of course, they haven't got any real experience until they do their expedition proper. Yeah. Well, you say people fall in the water, get hypothermia. Do they get airlifted out? Is there a rescue mission or the team rescues you or you really literally don't survive? Yeah, we have a safety structure, of course, uh, but, you know, it's very remote. Uh, I mean, the next expedition is going from the edge of the Arctic Ocean to the very centre of the Arctic Ocean. It's an 800-mile journey, uh, and where we start off from, our advanced base camp, um, is 350 miles from the nearest air, airport, for example. So, uh, well, not even airport, air, <laughs> dusty airdrome, yeah. So, yeah. um, so it's really incredibly remote. So we rely 99% of the time on our own ability to get ourselves out of uh, the situation. But there is an infrastructure that um, over the years I've learned uh, on how to get an aircraft in if we need to evacuate someone. And that's what we, we really uh, practice towards. Uh, but it, sometimes it can be really, really difficult. I mean, that 800-mile journey, for example, it will be a world first to get an aircraft to that point when we get to that point because it actually involves 33 different aircraft movements to get an aircraft to that point where they, re, uh, they land, they uh, refuel and they cache fuel en route to, to do that process time and time again. And you start off with three aircraft, you, you, you end up with two aircraft. And so it's logistically, it's a very difficult thing to do. And with some expeditions, uh, they are completely self-supporting. So up to about 30 days, uh, then they will take everything uh, with them uh, and they'll just be picked up at the end. And then uh, other expeditions like this, particular one I'm talking about, will be um, where well, the team's changing uh, three times on route, for example. So, yeah. So you do. I get assume there's no way to bring helicopters into the Arctic. Like you can literally <clears throat> not fly there because it's I don't know too dark or too cold. Uh, helicopters. There is a long-range rescue helicopter now that can be mobilised to the edge of the Arctic Ocean. 
that could uh, reach most of it, but, but they have to fuel cash most of the time, which means they have to fly out, uh, cash some fuel, fly back and do the same process again. But there's no refueling on the Arctic shelf itself, on the ice, there's no, no, no uh, depot to refuel. We do. Uh, we, we cache uh, fuel okay. on the edge of the Arctic Ocean as part of our advanced base camp. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a lot to think about. I assume <laughs> one of those expeditions runs into the millions of dollars, right? To, to run it and actually go there for that many people. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm on the sponsorship chase at the moment for this particular one. And I, my budget's $1.5 million. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's amazing. I, I do watch another show that exposes people to a lot of cold as a loan. I don't know if you've ever seen this show. And what I really admire, and they've, they've, they've been, and obviously people are loaned for about three to six months, but most people make it about a month. Um, right. And then after three months, there's very few people left. And they choose a season where it's relatively warm in the beginning. They're alone in the forest, just by themselves. They're not allowed to leave a five-mile radius of land. And uh, then it gets really cold. And it's kind of what really surprises me is you, they have incredibly talented people that they bring in. They're very experienced in, in being in the wilderness and to, to survive on their own. Otherwise, they wouldn't be even casted. And then... You, you relatively quickly in these episodes see there is people who get frustrated by things they, they, they don't have under their control, right? So they come with a certain mindset that worked for them and they have spent two weeks in the forest and they, they built shelter and it worked. And it, it, it's all very meticulous in their, in their mind. And once they encounter these obstacles, they sooner or later, and often sooner than later, they, they, they just give up. They say, okay, that's it. I, I'm going to go home. I just don't want to deal with this anymore. But then there's other people who have this almost joyful, positive attitude. They, 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 they love this challenge. They love when things go wrong and they have to redo it and they have to change it and change the attack. And they, most of the time, if they are not hindered by some accidents or illnesses, they usually make it all the way to the end that they are the ones usually that, are, that do win. And often they have basic shelters. They, they don't, on the outset, they kind of look like they won't make it for a week, but they make it for a month in the, in the cold without, and, you know, just with a sleeping bag. I'm always stunned that seems to be some entrepreneurial gene that, that kind of, it's almost like a, we, we push reality to, to the side and we, we, we see the picture much more rosy than it actually is which sounds stupid, right? But in the end, this is what drives us forward and, and makes us deal with environments that are very hostile to us. I don't know if that's something you also see. It's almost like people are overly optimistic in, in the sense of, I mean, they're obviously sometimes too optimistic and that's a problem too. But if you err a little bit on being too optimistic, irrationally too optimistic, that seems to be a recipe for success. Uh, yeah, I, optimism is really, really important. But uh, pragmatism... And uh, realism too, uh, you know, if something isn't working, you've got to face up to it. If you, if you don't and you think it's going to work sometime, then you're doing the wrong thing, really. So I, I have done quite a lot of uh, solo uh, long uh, expeditions in, in the Arctic region and in Antarctica. And um, yeah, I think um, you need a flexible attitude. You need to know that anything can go wrong. You may have planned it to the nth degree. You probably will have done because that's the type of person you are in civilized society. 
but then you you have to know that that ain't going to be <laughs> what actually happens uh, and you have to be very experienced i suppose and adept at change uh, as you face it really and knowing that it's it's going to happen and actually climate change ironically has made that much easier for people because uh, you know you you say you've got 30 days in the arctic going from a to b um when I first started this in in the early 80s, uh, you could predict what sort of weather you'd come across. But these days you can't. And different weather patterns coming and we're having rain in January when there's not supposed to be any whatsoever. It's supposed to be the coldest month and all sorts of things that uh, trip you up. So, so yes, they should be methodical. They should have a system. They should be planned. But they should be flexible in attitude in, in implementing that plan. And, and situational in in leading people in in that in that sort of plan. Yeah. Well, maybe you can run us through a typical workflow of a day in the Arctic. So, I assume there's a lot of sleeping, there's <laughs> some eating involved. I don't know if there's anything to catch any fresh food, or you just bring it. Um, and then you are on skis, and you 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 basically move slowly. I, I assume that's the key for yeah. ten eight hours a day? Is that a typical workflow? Yeah, well, it is sort of. Uh, it, I think these days that there is no typical. You might want to do that, yeah. but then you might come across a, an area of open water where it takes you way too long to get over it. And so you're not exhausted because you've got over it. It's just time consuming and irritating, really, uh, mentally speaking. So you might carry on, we, you know, we try and do 10, 10, 12, maybe 16 hours a day if we can, if we feel like it. But I sit at the back of the the, the line of people and uh, I take real notice of uh, how they look. You know, are they upright? Are they, are they have they got a spring in their, their uh, skiing? Are, are they feeling good about themselves or are they bent over? Are they withdrawing within themselves and not having a good time and what have you? And looking at the whole team, you know, you go with your weakest link and you try and support that weakest link. So you might have a six hour day. In fact, some days I have been known to say, okay, guys, we're all tired. We've had a hell of a day yesterday. We're, we're ahead of schedule, or even if we're not ahead of schedule, I think it's time that we. We stopped, we sorted ourselves out, so get all our ad administration right, all our systems that, that helps us in that process. Uh, and we don't move that day. You know. But sometimes as well, you'll, you'll get um, times when the weather is so bad outside, it will be quite foolhardy to try and you know take your tent down and expose uh, everyone to that terrible uh, situation weather-wise before you start going off. So you might have a day in your tents anyway. I mean, the longest I've spent in a tent waiting for the weather to subside has, has been six days. So, you know, uh, you've got to go with the flow and that flow is dictated uh, by Mother Nature. Yeah. I've seen people drive to the North Pole I ever get, always get confused with the real North Pole and the magnetic North Pole. They seem to wander around quite a bit. I don't know which one it was. Maybe one of them is much easier. And it started out from what I've, what I've seen, it started out pretty flat. Um, then it became this, this big wall of ice, basically, where it's very hard to drive and it was very slow. And then it became flat again. And it seemed like a you know one day or two day drive um, in, in a specialized vehicle. Uh, 
is that really depending on the route that you go? And how do you choose those expeditions and routes? Is it specific places people have never been, or is it especially challenging? Is it something that you really want to see? How do you how do you choose those targets? It's um, it, the first thing to say is there's a there's a lot of uh, BS. There's a lot of bullshit spoken about yeah. go, going to a North Pole. Very frequently, they're not going to the North Pole or the South Pole. On the South Pole, you've got a continent underneath you. And you've got a crevasse ice sheet uh, on top of it. So it's relatively solid apart from the crevasses. And you can avoid the crevasses using radar. Uh, so they can drive quite easily to the South Pole, relatively easily. Yeah. On the no North Pole, you've got sea ice. Uh, and the very, there's only one, maybe two expeditions that have ever driven there. And they've been Russian with highly, highly specialized vehicles. And it's taken them weeks and weeks to get there. And they're, they're aquatic vehicle, vehicles as well. You know, they can go on water too. So, um, but there's, you know, there are very, very few. In fact, I don't know of anyone that has been to the North Pole from uh, sort of North America or Europe uh, with, a, with a vehicle. It's a, it's a huge undertaking. It's 470 nautical miles of sea ice that breaks up all the time now and even uh, you know as an expedition to the north pole the, the geographic north pole which is the other one you're talking about um that hasn't been done by anyone over the sea ice uh, for a good few years now uh, because it's become so difficult i have so, to look into this again i'm pretty sure that's what they told me and you know yeah. who it was? It was the Top Gear guys. You remember the guys? So, you know, Jeremy yeah, Clark. okay. Well, I actually worked on that program, okay? Now, oh, oh, you were there. What happened? <laughs> yes, I was. I was a safety guy there. Okay, yeah. I was in Resolute Bay, which is where my base camp is, and uh, they were getting into trouble, and a friend of mine was guiding them, the dog sled guide. Um, yeah. and, uh, she's marvelous, Matty McNair, and she knows what she's doing, and she was tearing her hair out with them as well. But uh, Television is television. Uh, they were talking sure. about the position of the magnetic North Pole uh, in 1990. Now, the magnetic North Pole has raced since it was first... Uh, uh, discovered by a guy called James Ross uh, in, in the 1850s, he discovered it, has raced right the way across the top of Canada and over, uh, extended over into, it's now in potentially Russian waters. So it's well beyond uh, the, it's about five, 600, well, no, it's, it will be actually 850 miles further than we are going from the last landfall of Canada. So they went to a position that was an old position. So they never actually reached the magnetic pole. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they don't they, tell you that on the show. No, they don't. And it, it looks as though that. they've got they one vehicle. Driving around in Svalbard, it would have been the same show. You know? Yeah, that, exactly. Well, most of it was done just outside Resolute Bay. And it, they looked as though they had one vehicle. They had six different vehicles that they destroyed left, right, and center and rebuilt with a whole team of mechanics. So it's, it's yeah. a great TV show. But it actually doesn't tell you the truth. It, I mean, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's fiction. It's uh, yeah. That's what we learned with Bear Grylls. Even uh, he, he, absolutely, he, very, yeah. he got very popular, and people never really thought about. I felt maybe you saw it in a different light, obviously, but never really thought about what goes on behind the scenes. It looked real. That was good enough for the longest time. And then these stories came up that he sleeps in five star hotels every night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's what I would assume. You know, he's he, he, and he's very he's very popular. It's expensive to insure. 
in order to get on these shows and then they, they yeah, put yeah. the disclaimers there and change the format a little it's still great for quite some time yeah 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 i mean it's showmanship really yeah yeah not like reality believe you me. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah he, I, I don't assume he's playing with his his life on the on the show that would be silly but it needs to look that way right yeah um Talking about risking your life, have you ever felt you, you or one of your team members has been really close to where you felt or you're, you yourself, that's it, you're losing your life, you're not coming back from this? Yeah, I'm, I'm very pleased to report that within Ice Warrior, we've never had that situation. Um, but uh, I personally have nearly lost my life twice. Uh, sure. Yeah. The first time in the uh, mid-90s uh, when I was uh, trapped uh, offshore off Baffin Island. I was, I was doing a very long expedition for the Canadian government on the potential for sports tourism and wildlife tourism up on the northeast coast of Baffin, which is a spectacular uh, coastline. Uh, and I just got caught offshore. Um, we were a snowmobile with um, two Inuit guides and uh, myself and a mate of mine. On a, on a on a comatic and um, the weather changed uh, dramatically in no time at all we were out on the sea ice with the snowmobile we had to get the snowmobile back onto land to save the snowmobile and and the people on on there as we went towards the shore um, the snowmobile uh, or the, the comatic which is the the sledge uh, had two um, uh, wooden bits coming up in front of it. One of those wooden bits got caught on a bit of ice. Um, so the, myself and my mate Berwin had to uh, leap off the, the that comatic uh, and push it across ways so that the snowmobile could carry on. The snowmobile was digging a hole uh, deeper and deeper into this slush. Um, and so it, it managed to get away. Uh, my mate managed to get on top of it, of the sledge um, and I was left there a half mile offshore in slush that was sometimes up to my chest. Uh, oh. uh, they had to carry on, uh, understandably, otherwise we'd have lost everything. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how I did it, really. I, I became very aware that you, the brain is a phenomenally powerful thing. Uh, I was absolutely exhausted and I was pretty fit at the time. I'd just come out of the army, et cetera, et cetera. But um, uh, I was completely and utterly exhausted uh, and I sat down and the easiest thing for me, the, the feeling I got was that I just want to put this pain away. And so what I should do is just stop. Uh, and it, it sounds corny, but I, I had two children at the time and a wife and... Uh, my life went before me, quite literally, and I just resolved. My brain took over, really, without any conscious, as I remember, uh, thought. My brain took over and, and, and said to me, almost, uh, if you are going to perish here, you're going to perish trying your utmost not to. So I, I got up and I carried on. And I've no idea how I carried on, really, because I was so deeply and utterly exhausted but i did i managed to make the shore uh, and then um, they picked me up and, and sorted me out from a hypothermic point of view and exhaustion point of view uh, i live to tell the tales <laughs> yeah that's incredible uh, 
I feel like if you're in an environment where you can get wet and are exposed to these temperatures, you only have what, like half an hour, like an hour. It is a very short time frame that you have to, to yeah. support your, your temperature, right? And then that's it. That's right. Yeah. And of course, uh, putting all that effort in, I, I'd exhausted my fuel as it were as well. So I, I yeah. dehydrated. So yeah, once you get into that state, it's a downward spiral as far as, uh, you know, physical and mental abilities are. What I heard from, from other people, and that's related to this, who, who've been on very long solo missions, the biggest problem is, is for them, with some experience, not that they are too cold, because obviously you can bring whatever you want to keep yourself warm, and there's a ton of good equipment. But it is actually to choose it in a, and to drive yourself in a way that you don't sweat. Yeah. And then, because that that water is so close to your body and it obviously gets warm when the sun is out for a couple of hours and then it gets brutally cold at night. And if you don't get rid of this sweat and obviously you don't have like a laundry maker with you, you're in big trouble. That basically can, can a couple of hours later induce hypothermia and you're in serious trouble unless you have a, I don't know if you can make a campfire. I don't know what's the, the best plan no. is to <laughs> get out of this. What, what, what would you do if you say, for some reason you missed that point, you got really sweaty, you're really wet. What would you do? And you, you don't feel it, right? During the day, you're warm, you're still moving. But what happens later on? How do you how do you come back from this? Well, that's part of the learning how to live and survive in in the Arctic is is to control two things. One is one is the amount of sweat perspiration. You need to know where you're going to sweat, how you're going to how much you're going to sweat, um, and you need to guard against it. So you need to travel in a way that you can use your clothing system where you can vent. So that sweat doesn't um, accumulate and turn into ice on your on your clothing and compromise your insulation layers, and then you it, you also need to to uh, to learn how to cope with that situation if it happens. And the only way you can really is to have enough fuel um, on board um, so that you can uh, start up the stove and and dry you know various bits of kit out. At some stage, you will get wet kit. Uh, but it is deadly. The second thing that kills you is the wind, and you need to get out of the wind into shelter. Uh, and that, if you're wet in any way, shape, or form, uh, then you've got uh, an exceedingly cold situation. You know, the wind chill factor is, is amazingly uh, vicious. I can imagine. Yeah. When you talk about a stove or a burner, how, how I, I envisioned this as the little campfire burners that I had, you know, like you can make a little a, a bowl of spaghetti on it, but it's, you can barely warm your hands really in a cold environment. How, how, how big are the, the, the stoves that you bring with? Yeah, they're exactly what you say, but they are, you know, the top notch ones. And, and, and during training, people know how to fix these things. Uh, there's uh, kind of levels of, um, of difficulty. Well, there's a certain level, minus 35 and below, uh, gets a certain level and certain things start going wrong, including your stove at that level. But minus 40 and below, um, materials change. Uh, like the tent, uh, you know, I tested a tent once where the, the material, the, the outer bit of the tent uh, just shrunk so much that it was almost impossible to put it up. Now, without shelter, you're in a really difficult situation. Uh, I did actually get it up. But then, you know, the elastic that holds your tent poles together, that elongates. So you've got, uh, you know, all sorts of problems start happening because 
different materials that are fine at certain temperatures um, react in different ways. Uh, yeah, I mean, we have a, a latest incident of that was a thermos flask where the top was plastic, but it was a different plastic than the bottom. And so the top of the thermos flask used to pop off at minus 35. And, the, and so you'd, you'd constantly have to tape it on, you know. So the things, yeah, there are levels of difficulty that you get to. And all through training, you, you have to deal with every situation. Your stove is your lifeline, really. It's the only way you get water by melting you know, yes. snow or ice. So it, it has to work and you have to make it work. So you've got spares, uh, but your knowledge about that stove is second to none. You, you know everything about it and can do it in the worst of situations too. One thing I always wondered is the sleeping bags. Will they keep you warm <clears throat> to any temperature you encounter? I mean, I, I've, I've, I've bought some modern sleeping bags and I thought they're pretty amazing. They, they, once you warm up yourself a little bit, 15, 20 minutes later, I literally couldn't find the temperature myself because I've never slept in the Arctic, that where they were not sufficient. Are they that great? Is, is that really your second lifeline if you're not wet? Uh, no. <laughs> Uh, people have. <laughs> I wish it was. Um, people have different metabolisms. You and I have got a completely different metabolism. As I was alluding to earlier, you'll sweat in a different way than I sweat, and we'll burn energy in a different way, different degrees at different times, in different manners. Um, and uh, you've got to get used to how your metabolism works. And when you start an expedition as well, your metabolism, no matter how used to knowing what that is at that point in time it will change towards the end of the expedition just because of what you're doing uh, throughout that expedition yeah. so when your metabolism changes that much um you, you've got to know what to do with yourself and change your clothing system accordingly you've got to run at a level where you don't perspire too much you've got to vent you've got to do all these things that you get used to during training uh, so that the you make it as comfortable as possible and one of those things is sleeping i'm a cold sleeper uh, what i would call a cold sleeper so i lose my heat because of my metabolism very quickly and so with the very best of uh, sleeping systems and believe me i've had them uh, i know that i will wake up in two and a half to three hours time shivering at minus 45 yeah uh, and so my process of dealing with that is I know that that's going to happen. I know I'm going to want to relieve myself, uh, urinate, you know, because that's a, you know, a, a body of water that you want to discharge from a cold body, as it were. Um, and so I struggle out of my sleeping system. I get out of the tent. I, I run around the tent a couple of times, have a good <laughs> urination and then struggle back into my sleeping system, knowing that I'm going to have another two and a half to three hours before I do the same thing again. So, <laughs> yeah. so you get that's, used to That's just to, another challenge. I was all, always yeah. under the impression that you can, once you're in your sleeping bag and you're warmed up, then you're good to go. Like you can literally stay there for a couple of days and you'll be fine. That's well, I'm, I am very envious because some people sleep in a different way and they just go to sleep and they'll have, you know, maybe six, five, uh, six seven hours of, of good sleep. But I'm certainly not like that. So it depends on, as I say, your metabolism so much. Yeah. When, when you take people on expeditions, do they lose a lot of weight? Are they losing 30 pounds, 50 pounds of, of body fat? 
Well, again, it, it really depends on what type of fat they've got um, and and where it's deposited. I'm a, a fat, fit person by the start of an expedition, and I'm a thin, fit person or thin, fit <laughs> and <laughs> a bit dodgy <laughs> by the by the end of the expedition. So it depends what they start off uh, as. But there are some wiry people um, that will hardly change weight throughout the, the expedition, uh, and they'll be fine. So I, I'm not your your best <laughs> physique, if you like, uh, for for an explorer. But uh, I manage it. When you go on these missions. And when you go by yourself, how much is loneliness a factor for you? Is that something that makes you a better suited person? Or do you feel like in a team, it's better for you? I actually like both situations. Uh, in a team, I'm constantly on vigil. I am constantly looking at those other people and uh, looking um, at their safety and their condition and their mental well-being and all those sorts of things. So that keeps me 100% constantly occupied. Um, and there's no let up from that. So it's quite exhausting mentally uh, for me. Uh, but I love it because it's a massive, massive challenge. Um, when you're on your own, uh, things are, in many respects, much more simple. Uh, it's your, your own safety that you're guarding against. Um, and you know, you have to sort out your own system. You've got much more time to dedicate yourself to repairs and, and, and your administration so that things go sweetly and smoothly. So it, you can, I suppose I can, uh, enjoy it in, in the true sense uh, a little bit more when you're on your own because you haven't got that burden of responsibility. But I, I love both situations. I really do. Is it a problem for you to be by yourself for a long time frame, three months maybe, alone in the ice? Yeah, it is. Yeah, you have to put in, I have found personally, that you have to put in um, little safeguards to make sure that you're not going nuts, basically, <laughs> to make sure you're, yeah. not, you're not losing you know, your sense of reality. Um, of course, the satellite phone helps an enormous amount, and we have a check call, uh, you know, whether we're in a team or, or whether I'm individually. Uh, doing things um, each and every day, so that helps. But I remember actually <laughs> phoning up my father one day, uh, having reached uh, I don't know some monumental point, and you know the point of doing the expedition that I was supposed to be doing. And uh, I got onto my father, and he he just told me that his car had failed its uh, mechanical test or something. <laughs> wasn't interested in me at all or what I was doing, which was a real uh, leveler. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, brought me back to civilization. It's, well, it's got to be hard for your, for your parents and people who are close to your, your wife, your children. To, they need to adjust to this level of risk that you take, which seems quite enormous. It is obviously mitigated by the amount of experience you have and how you cope, have coped with this risk in the past. But, and they probably have adjusted to this over time, but it's got to be tough to to know that you put yourself willingly in a definitely potentially life-threatening situation every day. Now, we all do this right across the street. We could get killed, sure. but we don't see it that way. It's not a mental challenge for us, even if it's probabilistic, maybe the same challenge. 
How do yeah. the people close to you deal with this? Do, do you help them somehow or do you just tell them, you know, grow up? <laughs> I help them as much as possible, but uh, I have been married twice and uh, <laughs> I'm on my third uh, serious relationship, which which might be something to do with it. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I am very empathetic and I do have to justify what I do. I remember being up a, a climb, a rock climb, uh, and um, the, the heavens opened and it began to rain really heavily. And this was just after I had my first child. And I was on a, 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 a quite a really difficult t climb. And uh, it, it, the thought occurred to me that, you know, should I be doing something like this when I've got uh, the responsibility of, of that child? So I do, I am uh, meticulous in risk management if you like and risk assessment dynamic risk assessment you'd call it because it's a dynamic situation that you're in uh, and i've become over the years i suppose whatever an expert is I've, I've probably become a bit of an expert in that i'm the kind of guy that will get on an aircraft uh, just by nature and know how to get off it if anything goes wrong on, on that aircraft yeah, so <laughs> And, and I think that the single most important attribute uh, that I have in life is a vivid and very good imagination. So I can imagine how things are going to go wrong. And I think about what would I do if if they do go wrong. So I'm, I'm pretty good at risk management if I'm good at anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, I think this the simulation of all these scenarios, kind of what pilots do, right? When they go to a simulator, they have preset um, simulations they have to go through. But I think they also use their own mind to come up with other scenarios that they maybe have never encountered, even in the simulator. And how would they deal with this? That is enormously important because I guess it just it, it drives down your anxiety. As more, as more scenarios you've seen, as better you get, as more calm you are in the situation. And it probably also reduces your reaction time, right? It's instead of yeah. you spend a few hours analyzing, you're like, okay, I have two minutes and this is enough for me. I know what to do. Yeah. And it's, it's not just that. It's not dealing with the absolute situation because that situation won't exactly be as you've trained for it. But it's yeah. the being thrust into that uh, situation where there's lots of information coming at you and being able to sift that information into some sort of priority uh, and and getting on with the, the task at hand, which task is most important under this sort of critical crisis. And, and I mean, everyone that comes into Ice Warrior and trains in this is trained in critical crisis management at the same time. You know? That's why there's so many life skills that come with it. It's uh, It's really quite good. When you put your skills to work, I know you've been really focused on the Arctic and the troubles facing the Arctic, but also Antarctica. I would peck you for someone who's really also at home at the Himalayas. Uh, have you ever done expeditions there? I haven't. Uh, I've never been to the Himalayas. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> when there was the 1996, I think, was the big accident on Everest. I was actually um, on radio here talking about it, and uh, they made the mistake of saying, would I ever want to climb Everest? And I said, well, no, it doesn't interest me at all. What interests me about mountains is the, is the loneliness, uh, the uh, remoteness, the, the difficulty in getting out of trouble if you get into trouble in the first place. So I'd rather climb a 3,000-foot uh, mountain in the middle of nowhere with no support whatsoever than Everest, frankly, <laughs> where there's, um, okay. you know, lots of people. Pe 
yeah, I avoid people like the plague when I go into the mountains. <laughs> I didn't know Everest is that busy. Is it still such a problem? Oh, it's a, it's a nightmare. Yes, when I was a climber, I I I went out to choose a route, and if there was any one on the route, I'd choose another one instantly. Uh, Everest can have you know three, four hundred people on the same route, uh, and so wow. you know a lot of it is standing about, and that's a dangerous thing in itself. You know, yeah. um, uh, it's more of a herd mentality, right? So you can't really rely on your own and your own skills because wherever the herd is going, you, you to an extent you you're part of that herd, right? Because it's yeah. in, this, in your way at least. Yeah, I mean, there's no room really. Everest-wise, for the individual that wants to climb a mountain, you know, it's all guided uh, tourism uh, these days. Yeah, well, pretty I didn't much. Didn't know right? that. See, I yeah. had no idea. Yeah, you yeah. pay your sixty thousand dollars or whatever, and and get led by the nose uh, by someone that really knows what they're doing. So, yeah, <laughs> I didn't realize that. Would Would you accept people? I put it this way, who are fragile, you know, who uh, we know with Everest that happened, people with strong disabilities, one leg, one arm, they made it up. And obviously they've, they've had support, but they had to do it physically, right? So they were physically fit, they just had strong disabilities. Uh, it, are those options open for a polar expedition? Uh, yeah, physical dis disabilities we can deal with mechanically uh, more often than not. Um, But actually, I, I've got a bit of a reputation with my staff and and what have you for, for taking on what you might call probably not uh, very nicely basket cases. Um, uh, you know, people people who probably shouldn't go out to these things, but I like taking them because very often they surprise you. It's about pressing buttons uh, during the training process and seeing how people react. And some people who are quite fragile and you'd think no 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 you don't want to take those sort of people during the training process will you know come out of that uh, tent they're in or you know come out of that shell that they've been hiding in and really flourish and, and and they're the ones i really really enjoy getting through the system i've got a an instructor who um on the very first uh, selection process that i was talking about uh, one of the other instructors uh, came up to me And, and said, you are not going to take this guy on, are you? Because <laughs> he was macho, he was a loud mouth, he did what he wanted to do, wasn't a team player or anything. But I took him on just to see whether I could get him through this process where he realized that, you know, being a good team member, being empathetic, being kind, forgetting about the machoism, all those sort of things went into the background. And yeah, he's now an instructor for me and a very good instructor indeed. And a sort of archetypal ice warrior if you like yeah yeah so it's it's really a fragility of the mind that that is that is we talked about that earlier that that would be the biggest challenge for making it to the team yeah fragility of the the mind yeah definitely and i've only in the f over 400 people i've trained i've only had to say to seven people uh, i'm not going to take you Uh, and that has been because you haven't been able to expose them to themselves. They've not got down to that brutal honesty that I was talking about. Uh, and, and, those were people and so they're a danger to themselves, yeah, first and yeah. foremost, and then they're a danger to other people. So most people, they drop out voluntarily during that, that different stages. Yeah, I, and I wouldn't... Is it dropping out? They've had... 
more often than not, they've had uh, wonderful experiences. They've grown within that. It's whether they want to put up with more deprivation, I suppose, and more discomfort that they now know and can be make an informed decision about. I suppose that's that's what they do. Rather than drop out, they say, "I've had enough." Thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, it's these this, and I keep thinking about that. We we have this artificial challenges that we make up that we put people through that that runs through everything in society, right? Do you do it? with a certain plan, which, which is very unique. But we, we see this wherever we go in society. And it's like with mountaineering, you just, all these challenges are kind of random, right? There's no saving moment in climbing to all the tall mountains in this world. Like, you know, it's bogus, right? But you still want to do it because there's challenges out there. You, you, once you're in that, that mindset, right? And we, Obviously, men are sometimes more competitive than women, but they have the same problem. We all have that. When we see these challenges coming up, even though they might not make any rational sense, we, we at some points we just want to we just want to do it. And I just spoke to Charles Valley and I asked him. He's the most traveled man on the planet. Ask him why are you actually going there? Why do you spend eighty days at sea and you have a newborn at home? He's like, well, that was the only way to get this done, and I wanted to do it. And, I don't really know why, but there is this challenge, and this is my challenge, and this is my destiny, and I gotta go along with it. I, I don't want to give up. If there's anything I can do, I want to stay with it. I, that, that's how I would would assume is the Ice Warrior project. People just once they get into this mindset, this is a challenge. I want to do anything I can, unless it's not life threatening, to stay in it and become the best I can at that. So that's how how it works in my mind. Maybe that's just my mind. No, I, I think um, there is a, a real truth in that. Um, yeah, it, it depends really what you're motivated by, I think. Uh, some people are motivated by ego and, and glory and public exposure. Other people are motivated by uh, different things. I mean, I, my motivation is really, really simple. When I was 16 years old, I was playing... Uh, hooky from school. Uh, I was a nasty, uh, sorry, na naughty boy at school, as I said uh, before. And um, uh, I was bunking off. I sat on a, a bench uh, and uh, I was deeply depressed, like most teenagers are at some stage. And I thought, what the hell am I doing here? What um, What is this all about? What is life all about? Uh, and I started thinking down that, that way. And, and what I realized uh, within quite a short period of time was that I would never be able to answer the question as to why we are on this earth. Why are we here? You know, uh, it doesn't matter what religion you are. I, I just couldn't factor that into my brain. And I realized I could never answer that. So what was I going to do with that? I could, you know, do anything, become really even more depressed, uh, you know, be suicidal or what can I do? And I resolved there and then, it was like a Moses moment, to make the very most of my life. Uh, and so I've always been motivated by that because I simply don't understand why we're here. Mm -hmm. So anything I can do to make them, it sounds really corny, but it's totally true. Um the most of my life uh, is, is what I'm about. And so that's what motivates me. Other people are motivated by the science we do. I mean, the science is really important. We are gathering data that, um, you know, pushes our knowledge of what's happening to the system. And particularly with the polar regions, they actually keep us surviving on this, this planet. 
a lot of people make the mistake of, of thinking, you know, we're trying to save the planet. The planet will survive, it might survive in a different manner, but it, the question is, will we survive on this planet? Uh, and that's what we, we, we're dealing with. And, and so this, this whole ice warrior thing that's been going now is, is my manifestation for making my life as worthwhile as possible. I, I can definitely see that's how you realize your potential. And it is, is a unique choice, I feel. Um, but you, you've been interviewing and over time have talked to a lot of very famous adventurers and explorers in the UK, especially. They're probably not as well known here in the US. When you talk to them, what do you think, what did you learn from them, especially what, when you when you find commonalities with, with, with some of those, some of the, the most amazing people in a generation, what could you learn from them right away? Um, th there are common aspects, I'm sure. But I, th I think I find it very difficult to admire people. I, I, you know, I worked for the Queen directly. Uh, you know, I don't put people up on pedestals. I, I, yeah. I, I look them in the eye and I take them at face value. And, uh, and that I do with anyone and everyone. Um, uh, so, you know, when you look at people and, and what they've done, I, I am most uh, affected and, um, and, and really like people who have a, a, a nice... Uh, motivation really uh, why are they doing it you know I, I've I have interviewed you know climbers that have uh, done all all the 8,000 meter mountains and uh, all sorts of extraordinary extraordinary things and a lot of those characteristics are fantastic that they've got but as a person are they really you know uh, have they really got it together uh, you know an expedition team to my mind is a is a microcosm of society and the better you can get that team working together the more they're looking after each other the better off they are and so if we could translate that into a much wider civilization uh, then you know i i think that's marvelous so i'm motivated by spreading that word it's not religion it's not anything other than to me common sense kindness and that um characteristic of survival uh, which yeah. i wholly believe in so when we when you think about an expedition that you do it they, they strike me as kind of this prototype of a, of a smaller hunter-gatherer society right so that's where we, we supposedly our dna comes from and we we, we kind of are structured still genetically for <clears> this that we lived in small tribes, small groups, 20 people, maybe less than that from times. And then the maximum seems to be 100, which was reached relatively soon later. And as we became more specialized and more productive technologically, right, there is no other way than to live in this gigantic, anonymous societies where we are right now. They make us very rich, but they also do something to our, <clears throat> to our happiness and the way we interact with all the other people. I see this here in San Francisco, the, the, the level of, I don't know, how do I say this, public hate is, is enormous. So people hate each other. It changes once they get to know each other, but they put all the effort I can, they can in it to not get to know someone well, that they haven't pre-screened, right? So they, 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 it's, it's kind of a society, it's a strange view people have 
forgotten of society that it's kind of evil and it's taking advantage of them. I think this is what drives this theme. And maybe they're right. Actually, maybe this is not a, not a this is maybe a rational and, and correct analysis. But they don't put in this 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 positivity, this this or maybe not enough from my point of view, or this this self-fulfilling prophecy. If I contribute first, you know, the Christian laugh, then someone else might respond or not. Maybe they, they will come back to me and say, you know, an idiot, take advantage of this. But at least we give this positive interaction shot. When you when you see this small model, and I think you, you got it all worked out, and that's how, the, how a group of this size works. Do you think we can scale this in a wider sense of society? Is there something we can do? Is there an element how you see these scaled as to millions or millions of people? Yeah, I think you can. Uh, to a large extent, I, I think, um, you know, we all have this fear, and I think it's fear that you're describing there, you know, fear of uh, exposing yourself to someone else and, and, and them really taking the mickey out of it and, uh, you know, using it to their advantage and, you know, hurting you in the process. Uh, uh, but if we, if we, you know, lowered the barriers on that sort of fear, yeah, fear is the mother of violence, they say, and I think it's a truism. Um, if we lowered the, the barriers on, on that fear and, and be more open to each other and honest and had some integrity, um, I think if we built that in at an early age to you know our offspring, uh, then I think we would be a much, much better society. And, and also, you know, we don't use half the brain uh, to best effect. Uh, I mean, the political system over here in the UK, I mean, it was invented in the 1600s. It's wholly inefficient. It, it makes politicians, well, it, it creates politicians that shouldn't be in any leadership position whatsoever, in my humble opinion. <laughs> I am apolitical, in case you didn't realise. Um, but, you know, you haven't got the right system in place because, it, you know, it's 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 cast in stone so we think and uh, you know you haven't you're not making the best of society the same with commerce uh, you know commercial avarice uh, greed has has run the whole system for for way way too long you know we we need to get to a situation where we say hang on a second are we doing are we actually living uh, in a way that supports each other uh, and i don't think we are you, you know one of the one of the things about uh, technology, you know, applying technology was a good good example. Um, the non-polluting car that runs on compressed air, and okay, you you need an energy source to compress the air, but that can be sorted uh, through windmills or anything, was invented by the French in 1864. But because of, <laughs> but because of commerciality, yeah. It was buried. Uh, it was buried yeah. for, you know, hundreds of years, basically. And we're only yeah. just thinking about it now. You know, we shouldn't be sitting in a car traffic jam, sucking up poisonous fumes that we all know about, and you know, us blowing it out to someone on the on the sidewalk, you know, by by the side of the car. We should be thinking and using our brains to best effect, and we don't do that. We don't use our intelligence. I don't think to best effect. I, I love this present time period because I feel as though we are getting somewhere in terms of um, thinking about our guardianship of, each, of, of the earth and indeed each other. Uh, you know, we, we're now beginning to use 
our brains to better effect. And we're beginning to see that, you know, most of these political um, systems are just uh, darn right archaic. They don't work. They're inefficient. They're ineffective. So, I was I was talking to Robert Zubrin yesterday, and we were dreaming about, and he's been doing this for thirty years. He's like generations ahead of me, so to speak. How we settle on Mars and how we build a society on Mars, right? What what system do we actually use if yeah. we have a million settlers on Mars? And that could be ten years, twenty years out, might be longer, but it could be as close as this if we really are committed to this. And we also talked about terraforming. So especially on Mars, we have to introduce a lot of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere to make it warmer and then eventually oxygen, but much later on. So we are kind of faced with the opposite problem what we have on Earth right now. But maybe we learn from it, right? So we have to get a cheap energy and we have to find a way to make this relatively clean or in the realms of what Mars offers. So there's a lot of science fiction talk, but there's mm -hmm. a lot of engineering behind it. And I think the technology is possible. It's just, do we want it? And you know, what's the, our relationship with Earth and Mars? Um, but that's not as, you know, it's not a science fiction novel anymore. It, c it could be done in our lifetimes. Yeah. But maybe we should get our, our own house in order first. I think it's a problem. I think it's absolutely right to push out. And, uh, you know, it's the ultimate in exploration. I would love to be there at the forefront of, of uh, you know, habitating Mars. It would be absolutely extraordinary. But it is very cold right now. Yeah. So oh, you yeah, would feel at yeah. home. <laughs> I'd be okay. <laughs> uh, but, um, but, you know, we have to uh, be introspective first uh, because. How are we going to get that right up on Mars if we cannot get it right down in our own society uh, as exists at the moment? You know, that maybe we need a massive, great big think tank of all the, the, real, the really good thinkers in the world to just get together and say, if we were to plan uh, this society again, what would we make it look and feel and touch and, and be like? Uh, maybe that's what we need to start off with. And then we could play with that model uh, in something like a moon base or a, a Mars or whatever, you know, to see that we were actually thinking along the right lines. I don't know. People do that. Uh, so so he, he's just leading an initiative to just basically come up with a political system from scratch. There are lots of different Fantastic. And, and there's a bunch of, you know, philosophy and pol political philosophy professors who, who basically use this as a standard exercise to, to and, you know, those are PhDs but, and their students, but they come up with a way to, like, combine the best of all worlds. So these yeah. things are undergoing. The problem is how do we, how do we sell it, right? How, how, yeah. And how do we make it successful? It needs to be a shining su success for others first so others will adopt it, kind of like the, how the U.S. became the model for the world, the, the John Lockean system became a model for the world because it was a shining example, not because we went around and said, okay, you have to be like us now. Well, you know, it's a kind of a British, it's all British values, you know, Scottish, British um, philosophers who came up with these ideas. And, uh, but it took quite some time to, to have everyone get into the same, I'm not saying this is the best, but for the longest time, that's seen as the standard of democracy and separation of powers. Yeah. And, uh, it, it, it will take some time to, to get there. But I, it's definitely a desire, I think, for people, and I'm, I'm with you, to, to rethink a couple of those paradigms that we've been mm -hmm. not really changing for the longest time, which is quite odd. Um, yeah. I want to pick your brain on one more thing. And we mentioned yeah. that earlier. And you, we talked about Top Gear. You've been working with so many TV sh productions and TV shows 
And I always feel, and as you said that earlier, we attributed to this that it's it's kind of a big lie, right? We see something completely different. I'm losing you, Torsten. Oh, am I back? Yes. Okay. Where where did I stop? Uh, you've been working with uh, TV shows. Yes, you've been working with so many TV shows, yeah. and uh, we 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 talked about that earlier in part that we are being presented with lies, things that are actually not true, but I guess you, you, you work mostly with documentaries. When you work with TV shows, maybe you can give us a bit of an idea. What are the challenges with that team and the, the expectations that most um, producers have? Um, I think the biggest single problem, it doesn't matter whether you're in a wildlife documentary or, or, or um, or, or otherwise, really, uh, the biggest single problem is they try and create the program in an office in New York or in an office in London uh, way before they go out and and actually, you know, uh, make the program. Uh, I think it's far too constrained. The, the whole system's based on the commission, and they only commission what they want to see at the end result. Um, and and really, it, in my humble experience of, of dealing with both situations, the really natural situation and the situation where they're trying to get this particular bit of behavior from an animal or whatever. Um, they need to take away those uh, constraints that they formed in the office and uh, film what they come across. Um, for many, many years, I, you know, I, I, I uh, was lucky enough to interview David Attenborough, uh, who's a great wildlife, uh, worldwide wildlife guy over here, and uh, uh, huge accolades and everything else. And hit the programs he made, I'm sorry to say, just bored me um, for for most of the time. Um, and you know, I said to the guys when I first started working for the BBC, the production company that. Uh, does them all. I said, uh, you know what is really interesting is how you are trying to film the wolf and the wolf pack. So they started putting 10 minutes at the end of uh, uh, how they shot the film and uh, it became very, very interesting. And, and I think that's the way to do it. You know, you, you go out with an idea of what you want to get, but actually you film what you see and what you experience and what you feel and how the interaction between cameraman goes on the interaction between producers directors the tensions i mean that's phenomenally rich in in human story you know and i think people are ultimately um interested in in, in the us as humans uh, and how we react to the world around us and the world around us you know and i think that's way more interesting than anything they can dream up in their offices does that answer that's your question? A, that's <laughs> a lovely idea. Yeah, the, the way of, you know, showing the world how the sausage is actually being made and, and see that interaction, the difficulties, the struggles, especially yeah. in the environments you work in. That that sounds like a fascinating idea. I think in general, what what the TV industry and the movie industry is concerned with is producing something that is too boring for, for the audience they have in mind. It, there is this this idea of the unscripted documentaries and you kind of end up on YouTube and you get 200 views, right? So <laughs> it's, because it's, I don't know, 20 hours of mostly the same repetitive thing and there is no narrative to it. There's nothing that draws our attention to it. They might be 
they might be wonderful once you make it through 20 hours and you've learned a lot, but nobody does, right? So you, it's just one thing to produce something authentic, which I think is wonderful and is the right way to do. But the other way is to market it and to, to put it into this infrastructure that's often fake and that's often the problem, but it is an infrastructure that has come along and is successful in promoting certain TV shows and movies. Most, I mean, some of it is going away as we speak, but we even see this on YouTube now bubbling up. There's a lot of nonsense and it sounds yeah. wonderful and there's a lot of great stuff and it's just doing okay. Yeah, I think, um, I, th I think if you go out there and film it authentically, the, the beauty of it is in crafting that end product. So you've yeah. got actually the story, you haven't invented it, You've captured the story. You don't need the 20 hours, but you've cut it together beautifully. You've shot it beautifully. There's very good sound. Uh, the, the composition of shot is as best as you can possibly make it. And if it's not, there'll be real reason for that. Maybe a critical crisis or something. So it will be even more effectual. Um, but I think if you, if you combine the two things, wonderful production and authentic shooting, then... I think that's where people will really come alive and want to, to look at it. Um, th this idea that they know what people want is, is very arrogant uh, and it's dictatorial <laughs> and, it, and, and it really spoils television, you know. Uh, uh, good quality production in television and film is, is everything. And the story, if it's natural, is fantastic. If it's if it's made up uh, but beautifully produced, that's another great thing as well. You know, there are some fabulous films out there, acted well, shot well. Yeah, uh, so I'm a great film when buff people, as well. <laughs> yeah, when people want to dive into Arctic expeditions and Antarctic, ex Antarctica, what would you recommend they should take a look at? A film wise, um, yeah. Well, things you maybe have worked on. <laughs> uh, that's a difficult one. Um, I work as a safety guy, so uh, sure. yeah, I, I I have I shouldn't say this, but I've been very disappointed at some very famous uh, and very popular things that I've done um, uh, because I've seen behind the scenes, and they could have made it so much better if they'd shown actually what happened. Uh, so yeah. I don't know if I was pitching. If I was picking a film, I'm not sure I could, you know, I'm not sure I could. Okay. Yeah. That's a great, honest answer. Yeah. <laughs> you are very honest. <laughs> Thank Brutal you. Brutal honesty. I think this is an attribute you really use for yourself. It is. That's absolutely. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Totally and utterly. And that's what I get across to my trainees right from the start. And I, hopefully I demonstrate that. Absolutely. And it's very difficult to keep that up in public over the long time. It's amazing how you do it. Uh, well, <laughs> I'm, I've been someone that has kept below the parapet uh, and done whatever I wanted to do, you know, without any public uh, um, acknowledgement. And so most people have never heard of me, but uh, within the sort of exploration world, they've all heard of me. So, <laughs> so. Maybe we'll change that a little today. <laughs> Do, <laughs> thanks for coming on the podcast. That was awesome. I learned so well, much. Thank you so much. Yeah. No, it's been thanks a delight. Thanks for sharing your insights. It's, it's I hope we get great. to do this again. Yeah, it'd be super. And stay safe. Jim, Thank you up. very much. Take care. Take it easy. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye now.